So many people never see themselves represented in the classroom. PhD programs offer little, if any, pedagogy training, let alone having to do with intersectionality or decoloniality. We live in a time where old classroom conventions and ways of thought are proving to be radically insufficient. New approaches are desperately needed. Hello, this is Justin. And this is Ashley. Welcome to Pedagogies for Peace, intersectional and decolonial teaching podcast. An audio series that foregrounds critical pedagogies with a focus on intersectionality and decoloniality. We come from varied backgrounds. From political science, feminist international relations, native studies, critical media studies, American studies, and ethnic studies. From philosophy, peace studies, gender studies, and political theory to bring you insights from thought leaders and offer glimpses of what could be. From transformations inside the classroom to rethinking what is possible. Hello, everyone. Great to be with you today. As our second season continues, we get to continue talking to amazing pedagogues and researchers today, including. So today we're talking to Dr. Yasser Payne, who is an associate professor of sociology and Africana studies at the University of Delaware. His research and teaching focuses around street participatory action, among many other things, including street ethnography. He's done work in prisons, also teaches courses on methodologies grounded in black and brown populations. Thank you so much for being with us today. If I could just ask you a little bit of maybe uh, introduce this notion of street participatory action, and then also just give us an insight of your perspective of the relationship between your research and teaching. So let me just first and foremost say thank you, thank you, thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure and an honor um, to speak about the work. Um, but thank you, Justin. Thank you, Ashley. And thank you, Hannah. To have, you know, I always think it's also a privilege to have, to be able to have a frank and honest conversation just about, you know, a lot of the social injustice that we're seeing in society. But more specifically, with regard to me, So, yeah, I'm on, you know, faculty here at the University of Delaware. I have a PhD in social psychology, but, you know, I'm a street ethnographer and or I do street ethnography. And the way I do street ethnography is through this methodological framework uh, that we created called Street PAR or Street Participatory Action Research. And what street PAR is, is, you know, in short, that's when you take folks that are active in the streets, active in crime as a lifestyle or a worldview or a cultural orientation and or, right, we, we, we also work with folk who are formerly incarcerated or returning, right, citizens. And we say, hey, you know, come to our research program as a re-entry program, as a, as a way also, you don't necessarily have to be from prison, but, you know, you have to have some relationship or connection to the streets, Right. And we're going to train you. We're going to train you as I, we do, as I would a graduate student or a doctoral student. And I often say, particularly in some of my public speeches, right, street par, right? One way of understanding it is bringing the doctoral student model to the street corners. I worked with one of the top PAR researchers as a, my doctoral advisor, Michelle Fine, at the Graduate Center. So I learned a lot about PAR methodology. Right. But my only critique with that training or experience was who's using PAR to work with those guys in the corner over there. All these community researchers, everybody said they're invested in grassroots organizing. Right? We're using all the buzzwords, but who's working with those guys on the corners? Because I believe right, we, if we come up with a plan to help them, then everybody gets helped. <laughs> right. And why aren't we working with them? And you can imagine why we're not. But nonetheless, I said that's going to be my job. And so she was doing a lot of PAR in schools. We did some stuff. She did the project in prison as well with women. I caught a lot of attention, but it was time to do some PAR work on these street corners. And as a result, right, uh, my dissertation was the first street PAR project. And keep in mind, right, I'm taking guys that are active in the streets, particularly then, and they were my friends for the most part, Patterson, New Jersey, but I'm training them in research methodology and we do not water down the training, right? I'm training them in quant and qual. I have to train them in a rigorous way because at the end of this, I'm going to say that, guess what? This works. We need more scholars to do something like that. Look at all the change that we can create if we just go to real communities, right? And we help real people, right? So I'm a big, 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 big proponent, right? Of the apprenticeship model. That's what we have to return to. Right. And, and for me, even the progressive, that's in quotes, academicians, 
Most of them are afraid, actually, to return to real communities to work hand in hand with some of the most marginalized. Now, the irony is, as I say in my street ethnography class and in some of my public speeches, right, uh, the crack cocaine dealer, right, is probably more afraid of you than you are of him. Woo! And a lot of times, a lot of times, right, we're just tugging and just grasping on the most uh, darkest parts, right, understandings of these populations. The idea that they would touch you because you're standing there. So I always say that to my students, right, particularly before I bring them to the community with me, those who want to do research with me, right? They're more afraid of you than you are of them. Why? Because anything happens to you, all hell breaks loose. Now, they can kill each other all day. Ain't nobody going to lose no sleep. Nobody's losing any sleep anyway, including the good people. That is what's going on. And I only talk and I especially speak to the good people first, whoever they are. I don't know who's good in it. Right? And good, like Robin DiAngelo says, right? This, you know, she says white, you know, uh, with her right fragility theory, right? You know, white people, in particular white women, are deeply invested in this concept of uh, morality or goodness. And she reminds us through her work that, that good being a good person is a highly relative construct. Right, because all of our privilege is based on a bottom caste, right? And that's generally or primarily poor Black Americans, descendant of the slave South as well. They are required to be poor so that you and I can enjoy our privilege. Right. And Derek Bell says, you know, white liberals are liberal right up until the point. I didn't say it, he did. He's the founder of critical race theory. I agree with him, though, right? And I do teach his work a lot uh, in communities and at the University of Delaware in our graduate program. But he says they're liberal right up until the point until those kids from the projects start going to school with their children. So white liberals are probably liberal up until the point until when that black family from the project moves right next door to them. Right. And he talks about this with his argument, interest convergence theory. Right. And he wants us to understand. He says, accept. For the most part, they're going to stand on the sidelines and watch. Black Americans get butchered for the most part. Why, why, why? Because you stop that. At the end of the day, you stop that. The economy unravels. And if it's a choice between the economy unraveling or not enjoying the privilege or sending Bobby and Susie to college and making it right, and if it's a choice between all of that, well, they're going to side on sending Bobby and Susie to college at the time, even at your expense. And he says, and he says, Derek Bell says, and we teach through our street park program to real people in real communities, right? He says, see, you have to learn how to accept that. See, in your mind, meaning Black Americans, you can't imagine a human being being that indifferent. No, you think... No, you, you can't even imagine a human, right? So, you, so, so it's hard for you to accept. Read the last chapter in the face of the bottom of the well. Your first step is acceptance. That they literally can stand there and watch it all happen. And still call themselves a good person, i.e. Robin D'Angelo. So I know that's a lot, you know, for my opening, but street part, that's what we're about. We're about freedom. We're about justice. I only got a PhD for one reason. And that's for the liberation of my people. And I say that everywhere I go, including on the job talk and in the job interview at the University of Delaware. Yeah, I think one of the things that that was running through my head as you were talking is like how many people study racism or patterned inequality or structural injustice or oppression, not out of a commitment to fight it or overturn it or dismantle it, but just because they find it interesting. Right, as in a kind of disinterested sort of way, and how how toxic and terrible and like and deeply disturbing that approach to doing research on real people's lives and the violence and brutality that they face is. is. And so I'm wondering when you're with your students in the university, how do you like counter that approach with them to prepare them to go out and do street par with you? That's a great question. I think the academy is a very complicated place. Most institutions understand themselves as progressive or liberal, and we know that's not necessarily true. You do have progressive, you have some really progressive and liberal voices or persons or scholars inside the academy. But most institutions are, you know, for the most part, corporations. With that said, the average student who takes my class or works with me, whether they're Black, white, otherwise, 
They're generally taking the class of wanting to work with me because they want a better understanding, particularly of poor Black Americans' perspective. Right? That's generally the motivation I've come to learn over time. So they know, right, out of all the Black professors here, at the, at the very least, right, I want to know like how poor Black communities feel and what they're actually experiencing. And if you take Dr. Payne's class, you'll walk away with that perspective, right? So street ethnography, street ethnography, what is ethnography, right? Some people say street ethnography or ethnography is the examination of a localized population. But what, I mean, that's one way of saying it, but, but a more plainer way of saying it is ethnography is a study of culture. That's the area of the academy that studies cultural values. Um, and we don't do that well. William Julius Wilson argues this a lot in his work, um, meaning academicians in general don't know how to study systematically culture. Right? But in any event, ethnographers study culture and or, and or I have an expertise around understanding and teaching the culture of poor Black communities. So the average student that comes to my classroom, they're generally more progressive. They're generally more open. They're generally more ready for the conversation um, around structural violence, around critical race theory. I'm not saying I don't, from time to time, get one of those tough students or difficult students who didn't come to my class for that reason. But in general, that's why they're coming. And when you have students that are coming from that perspective, I think it's much easier to engage. They're generally younger, obviously, right? So they're not as set in their ways and they're more open to the discussion, not to mention it's happening throughout the country. I actually don't have a tough time as long as I make sure to, to ground my argument like in the literature or make sure it's, because they're literally, they want to know how poor Black folk think, you know? And they, they hear the argument, but a lot of times, right, the cultural values, it's hard to understand, particularly if you're not part of a culture. And I always say in my street ethnography class, in my graduate class, the only way you can understand culture of another, and all groups have cultural rules, priorities, goals, values. Culture is rarely spoken, is mostly done. The group will remove you if you do not adhere to the rules neither. All groups work like that, right? And I always say in my ethnography class to the grad students, I say, I say, I say, the only way you can study culture, you have to immerse yourself in it. It's only but so far you can get with YouTube or the book or a class, right? Or a movie or a documentary or, or journal art. The only way you can understand black culture, poor black culture, you have to move amongst the people, right? And most of us, including the good people, even if we do want to understand, we're not probably going to do that, right? Because most of us, and that's including the black students too, who and number of black college, most of black college students are not from poor black communities. Right. So they're often walking around mainly with a white cultural value system. It may be black, black, upper middle class slash white, but they don't. I, so most black academicians also. No, 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 no. They don't have any real strong connections or relationships with poor black neighborhoods at all. Neither. They know for the most part, white people can't tell the difference, particularly if they say I'm an expert on some black population. But at the end of the day, just know 99.9% of the Black academics aren't going into Black neighborhoods, um, even though they claim Black expertise. So I, I say all that to say, no, nah, it's not tough. It's not tough to work with the students that are coming my way. Most of the students also who are coming my way want to know also, in addition to learning, they want to know what help needs from a poor Black perspective. And they want to figure out or learn how to engage in help. Right. In the way, not the academy, not in the way that the academy, because we recognize help. I mean, if you're doing a journal article, we might call that activism. Well, I'm not exaggerating. If you present on a poor black neighborhood that you've never been to at an academic conference, that's been counted as activism. But the students are coming to my class. They say, OK, that's cool. I, you know, we get what's going on there. But hey, Dr. Payne, can you at least just teach us what poor black communities think or frame or count as real help? And or what can I do? And that's when they'll sign up and they'll, because street par, not only is it a research experience, right? We're teaching guys in the streets, theory, methods, analysis, with co-authorships. We're, we're saying, hey, 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 go on the road with us to academic conferences and let's present. Put it all on your CV too, right? Uh, we're also training them in activism as well, because we got to do research and activism, right? Street participatory action research, right? And in addition to that, I'm going to pay you. 
to do it all. And when you're finished, right, I'm going to then uh, transition you. We, I work with a team of folk. Uh, we're going to transition you into high quality economic and or, or jobs and schooling opportunities. So I do this action thing a lot. And young people, right, when they learn what I'm doing inside neighborhoods with students as an academic, they're saying, I want to take his class, want to be around him because I want to learn just how I can give back. And when I meet that person, oh man, keep in mind, right? And I say this, and I say this in Black neighborhoods, I'll take 15 white people with the right heart and do street party before I take 15 Black people from Grism and in the streets who think they know everything. That's not going to work anyway. You know, it's not. You know what I mean? Just because you only ran a crack, crack cocaine block, that don't mean anything with regard to working with guys in the street. Right. They want to work with someone who is serious, who's genuine, who's not all messed up with all their biases and all afraid and scared. They want to work with someone who's just going to keep their word. You ain't got to solve capitalism. No, you don't. Right. As if what you're promising, then great. Then solve it. But whatever you promise, just do that. Just care. Just give a shit. And just finding that person is hard. Because keep in mind, as a society, as an adaptive feature, most of us, including Black people, are hatefully indifferent. Don't lose any sleep. Right? Millions of Black bodies are required to live on the edge of life for this country to float. And even if a person comes into that awareness, because many folk, right, that's beyond their awareness. They can't really see how that's connected. And then we fall victim to, right, a lot of the propaganda. All you got to do is work hard and, you know, live in the land of milk and honey and, you know, opportunity. 4% of Americans have $1 million. 50 to 60% of Black Americans have $0 in wealth. By 2053, 100% of Black Americans, $0 in wealth. The average black family, right? I don't know if you're tracing the racial wealth gap in black communities right now, but in Boston, right? Check it out. Google it. Front page news on the Boston Globe. $8 in wealth. I'm talking about black Americans, not Nigerian, not Ghana, not Jamaican. This is in the slave south. That's front page news on the Boston Globe. Yep. The average black family, don't give me a lie. I don't have the source in front of me. I think in Boston, the average white family, 240000 That's in the bank. The average white family in the country has about 140,000, but in Boston it's 240,000. Oh, the average black family, according to the racial wealth, yeah, these are economists doing this, right? They're looking at around 1,500. The average black, we look around in the poor black neighborhood and we say, who got 1,500? In Miami, the average black family, right? Particularly the poor community, the average black, in my, $11. I wish I was making this up. And so city to city, you see the same thing, right? We are being devastated structurally, personally, socially, right? And it's in service of white America for the most part. Matter of fact, right, there is poverty is required. That's Ruth Gilmore, another famous scholar, right? Uh, Michelle Alexander says we live in a racial caste system, right? We are the bottom caste. In fact, in fact, you cannot enjoy your privilege without the poverty. The poverty, you can't have one without the other. No, you can't. In fact, the privilege is based on the poverty. That was our purpose with slavery, and that has continued to be our purpose throughout. So say all of that to say this, the average student that works with me, and I work with a lot of white students, uh uh-oh, a lot of good white students too, that really want to do the right thing. That's really in them neighborhoods with me. The average student that works with me, they have reached a level of awareness. And they may not know all the details or blueprint or know the cultural rules or values of Black communities. But what they do know is this. They don't want to be a part of this no more. What can I do? And you don't have to solve the world's problems, right? But just do what it is you say you want to do. And if you really want to do some good work, come hang out with me in the neighborhood. So that's the kind of student that. Um, you know what struck me when you're speaking was you said that you uh, 
you got your PhD for one reason, and that's the liberation of, of your people. And then we talk about, you mentioned Black Americans, Black society in the United States being devastated in service of, uh, of white America. And so you had mentioned that even in your, uh, in your interviews and with your research, you're very explicit about these normative commitments. And uh, there's a reason for that, clearly. But in a lot of spaces, we know that that's frowned upon. So I think when we have normative commitments, no doubt it changes what we see as quote unquote outcomes of our research. So maybe if you could speak a bit about how explicit you are in your normative commitments and how it impacts your your approach to teaching. But then also, I know that uh, some of the folks that you learned with, studied with, worked with in your research have actually studied under you or are now at the university or have graduated. So how do we even redefine what these so-called outcomes are in relationship to those uh, normative values that we have? Well, at least how I come to that statement. I was doing this work. I always had a knack to organize guys in the streets, probably starting when I was about, that's when I got to college. I went to, originally from Harlem, also raised in Inglewood, New Jersey, which is 10, 15 minutes outside of Harlem. I do come from one of those families, if you will. Right. My father was a bodyguard for Malcolm X. Grew up around a lot of activism. He was really, he worked for his sister, Ella Collins, who really raised Malcolm. And she's well-respected in a place like Harlem. Uh, lots of respect. Really raised him, really taught him about the streets, but also taught him about, you know, organizing and all of that. He does come ultimately from a family of Garveyites, though. But my father, say I'd say my father, you know, was around a lot of these people, Black Panthers, everyone, right? And he, you know, did a lot of organizing. He was a big figure, my father in and of itself, too, in Harlem. Did a lot of organizing as well. That's my initial frame of reference, right? And the kind of organizing that we see in neighborhoods, the grassroots level, um, is different than the kind of mainstream organizing that you might see with a Patrice Colors and Black Lives Matter, right? Keep in mind, right, Black Lives Matter has never gotten any real love in actual poor Black communities. That's another conversation, but I just want to make the difference between the different levels of activism and how it's understood. The average, there's lots of activism always going on in poor Black neighborhoods. And the kind of on-the-ground grassroots activism generally doesn't get, that's the real activism that people are responding to on the ground. And that generally receives little, um, like, national media attention. Um, so folk like my father's, folk like Ella Collins, um, Malcolm's sister, folk organizations like the Nation of Islam or, or the Five Percenters or Hebrew Israelites, right, are often recognized as very controversial. They may or may not, depending on the comment or the situation. But these are the folk that are being recognized. These are the folk on the ground. These are the folk who are making sure people are fed. These are the folk that are making sure people are safe, right? And I'm growing up with that version of activism as a child. There were tough times. You know, in my family, in terms of issues related to criminal justice system, issues related to money, yada, yada, yada. Right? And, and there were many Christmases or birthdays. My brothers and I didn't receive any gifts. But every Thanksgiving, every Christmas, Easter, every New Year's, my parents shelled out thousands of dollars. Right? And free gifts, food, you name it, for Harlem. Even during those years when their children didn't get gifts. That was a beautiful lesson. Didn't understand it then, but got older. And I wish I would have said that to my parents. Right? I end up saying that after that eulogy, you know, that I gave for both of my parents. Now I understood. The mind you, Harlem came in, right, to both my parents' funerals in large numbers. Now I understood. Beautiful lesson. So I'm growing up with that version, that frame of reference around grassroots organizing and activism, not the one that you see on TV, right, on MSNBC or CNN. That's not who's organizing these neighborhoods. Patrice Cullors, she's not, come on, stop. These are people that are identified, your average Black leaders, your Van Jones, your Patrice. These, half the folk in the Black community don't even know who these people are. These people are handpicked by white people to serve white interests. CBC, Congressional Black, I, I mean, you name him. John Lewis. I mean, I don't mean, I don't know where your politics are. I am giving you, though, um, an accurate portrayal of how poor Black folk understand these folk. Right? So it's like a lot of folk will say, well, a lot of the CBC uh, supported uh, the 1994 crime bill, too. They were put there to do that. What you think they're there for? What you think, Barack Obama, what do you think they're all there for? 
you know, Barack Obama was not no community organizer in Chicago. I was a real community organizer. My father and my mother, I mean, these are people on the ground. And, you know, I mean, he's, that's performance. That's what I mean, high, high, you know, performative identities. He's painfully performative. So I'm going over with that version, right? And then there was tough times. And, you know, check out my TED Talk. I give my whole life story about how I come into my activism in my TED Talk. But, but we lose all the businesses. I'm a, we become street peddlers, right? Selling a lot of stuff on the, on the street corners, like uh, batteries, books, et cetera. And I realized, wow, we really hit the bottom here. And I realized nobody cared. Walking past us. And, and I realized I didn't want to be that person. Right. And I realized, you know what? I want to know who's helping those guys in the corner because if we help them, we help everybody. And it's really when I get to college that I learn, I meet someone who really teaches me. Right. And, and he takes me on the road and we start working in poor black community, but we start working in the streets. We start doing gang intervention, in Brooklyn, Chicago, just all over the country. And that really became the blueprint for me with regard to what would later become Street Park. I was mostly doing street outreach at that time. But when I started working on my doctorate, I ran into Michelle Fine, who does this thing called PAR. I'm like, boom, that's it right there. Because it would give me the empirical gravitas. Street outreach allowed me to organize. I knew how to move in the streets. But now, right, we're going to get that empirical piece on top of the organizing and activism. And it was a great marriage. So with that said, right, I only got a PhD. The motivation and all the stuff you got to go to through all the politics. The only thing that got me through, all right, you know, when I get frustrated, angry, upset, why are you here? Right? This is a doctoral student now. Well, I'm here to get the liber- for the liberation of my people. And that would calm me down, right? And if you, you know, I do a lot of stuff on, I teach a class on ancient Egypt. And um, study abroad class. And, but one of the things I say in the class is, you know, ancient Nubians will always say, know thyself. That's where it comes from, the ancient Nubians, not the Greeks and the Romans. They stole a lot of what they purport to be the first of or whatever from the Nubians. But on all of the Nubians' pyramids, right, they're like 118 in Egypt, right? Egypt is a colony of Nubia, um, or Kemet, its original name. Egypt is a Greek word, right? Kemet is a colony of Nubia. Um, Palestine is a colony of Kemet. Right? Keep in mind, all of Middle East, that's blue-black land. Kind of like what happened with the Native Americans here. That's what the Arabs did to the blue-black people. That's just a term. Those folk are darker than me. It, we, it's referred to as blue-black. So the, the Palestinians, not, and I don't like what's happening to them right now, but I'm just saying, they're not. So you have these indigenous folk from Nubia into what we call the Middle East on all of their pyramids. It had hundreds of pyramids, hundreds. And at the beginning or at the top of the pyramids, know thyself, right? Because if you know yourself or your purpose or your focus, it will realign you in times of disequilibrium. So getting back to your initial question, right? So now what anchored me was the statement, why are you doing this? And then my response for the liberation of my people. So now you know what argument to have, what argument not to, right? Because if that's what it's about, you are clear on your agenda. And street par just is my way of contributing to that end. So I've always had a knack of organizing guys, those guys from projects, to do God's work. And I know there's nothing more infectious in terms of organizing or grassroots initiatives that I've seen personally than PAR. In fact, PAR was so infectious in Central and South America, various federal governments began assassinating the PAR researchers. People like Nesia Martin Barro, people like Paulo Freire, Pedagogy of the oppressed will try to assassinate him, they jail him, and then they exile him. People like Ernesto Che Guevara, Fidel Castro, well, they do the largest, most aggressive PAR project known on the planet. And you see how it ended for them, their action. It's called the Literacy Brigade, right? So I hope folks hear this and Google these names and their projects. Someone like Ernesto Che Guevara, he had a medical degree and he would publish in the journals, particularly around asthma because he was an asthmatic, right? God doesn't make any accidents, mistakes or coincidences. He's bringing this body of knowledge, this, this research background. He runs into Fidel and 
They start the Literacy Brigade. They have one of the highest literacy rates in the world now because of that PARP project in the 1950s and 60s. Right? They have one of the best healthcare systems in the world now because of that PARP project in the 1950s and 60s. So for me, when I part this, I've never seen anything spread like wildfire inside a neighborhood like PARP. Right? When folk can control their own information, data, and know how to weaponize it right, for their sociopolitical interests, oh, man, they get excited with the reading, the writing. They show up every You don't even got to pay them. I mean, I do. But you don't even, if you're here to teach, right, I, let me end on this point, right? I do a lot of school-to-prison pipeline stuff. And what I often say to educators is this, right? First of all, I've never met a child in a Black community that didn't think doing well in school was a good thing. I don't know where that person at, right? Because they'll say, right, they don't, not learning or doing well in school. That's cultural. No, I never met any. And so we documented because I've never seen anything like that before. They do want to go to school. The reason why they're disengaging is because from a cultural standpoint, the purpose of education is to somehow lead to my socio-political liberation. And when they get in school and they there and they're learning about Greek history, and you're, what the, what is going on? And this, that, the third, and, and they're being taught to the test and this, that. This ain't going, how is this going to help me and my problems that I got to go back home at three o'clock to the drugs and the poverty and the unemployment and the mass incarceration? Hey, teacher, when we going to get to that? And why are all the teachers white women? I'm on the governor's task force for schools. I'm on the governor's task force for police. And what I say on both those task forces, I act just like this. Yes, I do. You cannot find any white community in, in this country that would allow its children to be mostly taught by black women. And that's including the liberal ones, too. You can't find any community and white community in the country that would allow their communities to be policed by mostly black men. And that's including the liberal ones, too. So obviously it's being done by design and or getting back to schools. They see the curriculum as disempowering and not leading to any liberation. We bring in a different kind of curriculum. We bring a curriculum that's based on their needs, their interests. And that's what they started doing in Central and South America. That's why they started burning all the Western books and get those missionaries out of here. Right. And now they started learning about their own history through their own tongue. Valuing their cultural values in ways that it was not valued prior to. So Western cultures love undermining the arguments of culture, the value of culture, and it really privileges the individual, right? But the thing about culture is, man, it can bind the people in a way, right, that can be hard to oppress. That's why they take your God away from you. They, tell, they make your God insignificant. They make your culture insignificant. They tell you it's not even real. It's a social construction. Like I tell my grad students, when you go to the Black community, you can believe all that if you want to. That works here in the academy. You start saying that in actual neighborhood, they will run you out. So street park for me is a way to preserve the integrity and the focus, the cultural focus um, of the people, i.e., why am I doing this? For the liberation of my people. A lot of what you're saying about how institutions of education, both K through 12, but also the university, are set up in the service of capitalism, white supremacy, heteropatriarchy, et cetera. And really then the way that we teach, it really mirrors those values, even despite individual people's best intentions, right? You know, you could be teaching radical content, but fundamentally the way we teach is really indebted to the structural features of those systems. And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about this apprenticeship model and how it's different from like the normal way that we are taught to teach or not taught to teach, just sort of like, us, you know, just like throw graduate students in a classroom. And you're like, yeah, do whatever was done to you. That's probably fine. So just like giving us a little bit more about what this apprenticeship model looks like and what you see coming out of it, how it, this moves us more toward the liber- liberation. It really, the, the idea of an apprenticeship model uh, really evolves out of the fact that we're trying to figure out a way in terms of what works, what can we do to push the needle? How can we get, you know, a lot of folk are poor? How can we get people more opportunity? Like, 
So those kinds of questions, like what can we do different now, you know, post civil rights, black power movement that can move the needle, particularly for those guys in the streets. Right. And then when you really think about it, and this is true for the academy, but this is true for any industry, like major industry. At some point, right, uh, the books, the classroom, like all of that has a limitation, interestingly enough, even though we kind of present it sometimes as if it's the totality of, of your expertise, right? But, but, but we know at some point it has a limit, right? There has to be a practical level to the education for you to really internalize it and acquire those skills. So in the PhD program, like we know, for a student to be a researcher, and really be good and competent and all that good stuff. Um, no doubt they got to do well in the class and all of that. But they're going to have to at some point really get on a research project and hang out and learn all the nuances. Whatever the study is, it could be with me, it could be in the lab, it could be wherever. But you're going to actually have to do. And then the best, the first step to doing that is, right, it's not that you launch your own study. That would never be encouraged, right? You are to join a researchers or a faculty members research project as a research assistant and usually start out doing grunt work data collection things like that but you really learn but and, and, and outside of the class the classroom does have real value but what i'm saying is it really begins to make sense over a two to three year period mind you when you are doing that kind of grunt work on a study then study one study two study three now you have this experience now you can connect the theoretical dot. Oh, I see. And ooh, and now, now when I read the journal article, I'm reading it differently because I have the practical experience. So I, I share that because this, to, to say that we know that to become a researcher, you're, you're going to need some practical level experience outside of the classroom. And then obviously I'm the cherry on top. I mean, it's your thesis, your master thesis, but it's also your, your dissertation, right? And you will be guided through that. Um, as well, right? So, but we know the practical, you can't ignore it or it'd be very difficult to do it, right? And that's true for any industry. Law, if you want to be a, an MD or a doctor or a surgeon, right? Or you, you name it, if you want to be a musical artist, right? Whatever your thing is, at some point you have to do that. And for us, with regard to these guys in the streets and women, we work with women too. What we say is, right, there's no rule that can prevent academicians from going to the communities and teaching real people real skills, right? And we have the relationships and the resources. Keep in mind, poor Black uh, stories is a multi-billion dollar market in the academy alone, documenting their suffering. Never, you know, mind you, ain't going to do nothing about it. But just documenting their suffering, that's a multi-billion dollar market. So when I learned this, that means what? I said, okay, cool. That means our data is the most, in the social sciences, the most valuable data. I mean, literally. If you want to get that book on the New York Times bestseller list, particularly, right, you better write you a nice, you better find you a nice poor Black neighborhood somewhere, find you a nice little exotic population, and you write about them. Right? So everybody's juicing, fleecing, right? These communities. Right, for their most precious knowledge and experiences and data for their careers and their reputations. We're all exploiting them too. Me too, by the way. I think I am doing a healthier version of it, but at this point in the game, an academic and or the work that we do, it's so inherently, obscenely unjust and unequal. Right? I don't even know how to turn it off. And I say this on day one of my trainings in neighborhoods. I'm going to exploit you too. I'm probably going to get way more out of this than you ever will even though I'm going to do a healthier version of it, but don't let me lie to you. I'm part of the problem as well, but I'm going to do my best and I'm a work in progress. That's how I start. And I say to them as well, I say, you know, that apprenticeship model, I say, there's no rule, no law yet that can stop me and other faculty that I work with and my grad students from working with you, right? And teaching you and equipping you with a real methodological skill set. And I mean real. We don't water it down. 
My guys can take my training and they'll go off to college. And when they get the methods class, they'll say, hey, I took three. I think I took a three month workshop on methods and this is what we covered. And I think it's more than what we're covering in this class. And many of my guys class has been clear. I mean, you know, it's they've received the credit. Because now a number of faculty know what I do and they know it's real. A number of faculty here at UD and other institutions, right? I say, okay, 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 we're the prize, meaning meaning poor black data is the prize. That means we're always gonna keep those multi-million dollar grants around here to study poor black people. And then and we're always gonna want access to that exotic data, right? We always don't want that data from the projects. My guys can get it for you. That means we should always have a job or they should always have a job and pay them the doctoral student rate. And a number of faculty have, right? Because my guys are well-trained, right? Because of the, of the apprenticeship model, right? I said, okay, I tell my communities, I tell my guys, I tell my women, I said, hey, I'm going to teach you. I'm, we're going to teach, equip you with a real quantum qual skill set. There's no rule that can prevent you from learning this stuff. There's no rule that can prevent you from publishing in journals. Because, you know, I'm letting them know the highest piece of currency in the academy is the journal publication. There's no rule, right, that can, at least right now, probably there's going to come a time where they bar them from that. Because now, because of my work in Delaware, the colleges out here are now, are now barring or uh, making it really difficult for returning citizens to go to college now. That's because of me, because of the program, right? And I'm pretty sure that's happening throughout the country. But it was because of me that it's that the project, the Dell Techs, the Wilmington Universities, the UDs, uh-oh. no. But up until that point, I'm going to take you to the academic conferences. There's no rule that can prevent you from presenting, right? And, I want, and there's no rule from you presenting that co-author. And I'm going to, let me just share this last story as a way to understand apprenticeship, right? And this whole argument I'm making on the rule. I went, they brought me out to Ohio State to do a keynote in the Inside Out program in Ohio, right? Columbus, Ohio. Met them, went in there, great guys. A lot of them doing a lot of time. A number of them are coming home. A number of faculty in there and students. And I said in my talk, now, what I'm about to share with y'all is probably going to really frustrate, perhaps in some instances, even make angry some of the faculty in here. But let me tell you what's going to work in terms of changing your life forever. Because I know you want to come home and you want to things to change for you to get opportunity. I said, so what I'm going to do is tell you the secret. And I promise you this is going to work. You see all of these faculty in here and all of these students, but particularly the faculty, you know, Ohio State is what we call an R1 institution. That means we do a whole lot of research. And I know you, this is also a research think tank too, slash course. When you get out of here, I want you to call up one of these professors who say they really want to help you. I want you to connect with them and I want you to remind them that they really want to help you. And then I want you to tell them you want them to help you publish in a journal. I want you to hang out with them for about four or five years. This is the apprenticeship model. I said, I told them, I don't know anything that works better to change particularly someone's life like yours. Tell them, tell them. And also, if you have a a slot on your research team, if one comes up, you want a line, you want an RA line. But outside of that RA line, most importantly, you want instruction or guidance on how to author, co-author. You want to join a public, you want to join a research publication, but you also want guidance on how to be a primary author as well. You want to do multiple publications over about a four or five year period. That's probably going to be some awkwardness and writing, you know, and all of that. And your professors are not going to want that extra responsibility. But they said they wanted to help you. Now, you're going to make sure you hold them to that, right? Not only that, you're going to say, hey, professor, you're going to say, I remember that paper that we're working on, that data analysis that we did. Well, remember when Dr. Payne was here? He said for me to also remind you, take me out to an academic conference to present this a few times. I don't know how to do that. Can you show me? Can you help me get the PowerPoint together, Professor? Because you said you wanted to help me. Isn't that what you're doing with your students? Okay, cool. And right, what should be the easiest, I want you to help me figure out how to get into college. Because Dr. Payne said, right, there's loopholes and, and although the colleges are working really hard to keep us out, right, I want you to help me find a school that I can get into, even if it just means to take a class, start out taking a class. 
Dr. Payne said, if I did this over a four or five year period, my life would change. I want to see if that works. Now, after I said that, I said, again, faculty, there's a lot of faculty in here. I'm sure a number of them are frustrated that I even mentioned that. But they said they wanted to help you. I don't know any model that works better for this population than that kind of activity or model, the apprenticeship model, hands-on teaching, going back and forth like we do with our grad students. I promise you, particularly if you, if that, and they got to teach you, right? And I said the other thing, they got to teach you how to take all of those experiences and put it on a CV and help you, right, understand how to leverage that CV for schooling and work opportunity. I've been, I do it. I got I, so many institutions out here hiring my, hiring my guys hand over fence. And I said, you got to pay them a real salary. Yes, you do. And they got to get a real office. You said you wanted to help, right? meaning whatever the agency is, right? And I want them to have an office right next to the white person's office. I say it just like that. And I want them to have a real salary and real benefits. And yes, he did about 10 years in prison, but you wanted to help. And I will say to the credit of many agencies out here, they've taken me up on that and did it. Why? Because my guys are well-trained. ACLU, Christian Care Hospital, me, I, and I'm talking real jobs, real salaries, real benefits, real offices, guys and women really from the streets. Ashley Biden, who's been very supportive, Bo Biden before he passed away, very supportive. Ashley Biden is the daughter of President Biden, right? She's very progressive for what it's worth. She was, she had it, she stepped down when her father ran for president, but she led one of the, the largest, most influential reentry center in Delaware, Delaware Center for Justice, which I'm on the board, right? Same deal. Everywhere I go, no, 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 we don't compromise. Mm -mm." And she did. Real jobs, real salary, real benefit, real office. And she'll say it next to the white people. Why aren't some of these guys on the board? Oh, guess what? They put them on the board, too. And it's a very prestigious board. You can you can tell a lot of these boards of directors. There's only certain kind. I want to know why some of why some of them aren't on the board. So my point is, it's not until we do, until we help like that, and we help in the granular, sometimes I say, but we get on the ground, roll up our sleeves, one person at a time. This is Bell Hooks. Bell Hooks says a lot of us justice folk, we're just divas. You just want to be a diva. She says, we have to return back to the days, civil rights movement, movement days, is what she's talking about, where we have small time conversations, at small conversations at, at the table. And that's really where the work is done. That's the unglorious and the hard and tedious work are really done in small groups and and done by people who are not looking to be divas, working and helping and changing one life at a time. That's how we help. Most of us want to be on MSNBC as opposed to on the ground changing real people's lives. This notion of performative identities, and you mentioned working with real people, real communities real skills. What does that look like in a classroom setting? I think the classroom, particularly at R1 institutions, and I'm sure you all know this, is just a very politically correct space. You're not incentivized by the R1 institutions to teach or do research or activism. You can do research but to do the activism piece in terms of organizing people and teaching more people. They didn't, no, 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 no. So we are in the era of public scholarship. We are in the era of community engagement. We are in the era of diversity and inclusion. So you hear public sociology, public criminology, you hear all these buzzwords. Uh, translational research, right? <laughs> oh, man. Now, like I said, highly performative culture. The academy does not want to be in the business and I understand why, you know, keep that in mind. I do, I really do. But it does not really want to be put in the position, even though it has the resources, it has the intellectual, financial, and other resources. But, um, but it does not want to be in the position where it's leading the overthrow of capitalism. It doesn't incentivize you. Like you get no real reward as a faculty member for going out in communities and doing this. Because it's not valued like that. There's one horror story after the other. And you're able to find those 
progressive scholars who are truly progressive trying to do this work. And most of them end up leaving, right? Because they're really frustrated, angry. And that's why I always have to say to myself, know thyself, why are you doing this? Get me back reoriented, liberation of my people. Because it's not incentivized. So you do got to find a small community that you can kind of rock out with, make sure you're not going crazy. Doing this in a vacuum is it's tough. So no, you're not really incentivized to teach students this. So what you end up having to do, if you want to still do the work, you have to embrace or accept the burden of working harder, longer. I remember a former dean had said to me, you know, basically the deal that, that I've made, whether I realize it or not, I got to do both. And he's very frank with that, meaning like, you know, and he was saying it as a friend, let me be clear. But, you know, because I, I mean, I'm in the newspapers a lot, particularly out here, and I get a lot of support in the community, and that's by white people too, right? Um, so they notice it. They do notice it. You know, I win my little awards, you know, or big awards, actually, in, in Delaware from time to time. I wouldn't say all the time, but, but my point is the community kind of holds us up in a certain kind of way that the university cannot ignore. Now, but for what it means for me to be here, I got to do both. All right, cool. Do the activism, keep working with those guys, keep changing lives. There's no real incentive incentive to do this. It's not going to help me get the big promotion. I'm not going to see a big jump in my salary. I'm going to work harder. I'm going to stress out. I got to be ready, you know, and then you're doing this work. Keep in mind, right? I'm working with guys that's in the streets. Some of my guys have been shot. One of my guys has been shot and paralyzed. Some of my guys' children have been shot and killed. I mean, I got to take that phone call at 11 at night. I got to be ready to go to the hospital and spend a lot of time there. Right? I got to disrupt my life, life in ways sometimes that I haven't planned for. And keep in mind, we plan kind of like this. That. We don't like breaking our schedule. Oh, well, you know. And I do a lot of that. I also have a strong relationship with the clergy out here. And, that, and by that, I mean, because like I said, we're doing God's work. And that means I get the invitation from the black and the white churches to preach on Sundays from the synagogue, from <laughs> the mosque, right? I preach. I, I also am asked to come to these different institutions and houses of worship to um, give public speeches as well or be in panels. And so I get a lot of love in the neighborhoods and in communities. And that's from the professional to the street corners. That's from black and white, poor and white. Right? I don't know how I sound, but I just want lots of love. Par is on fire in Delaware, street par. Um, I get hundreds of letters that are written to us from the prisons over the years, right, to come. They want to train with us when they get out. And I think there is, that is the reward. That's what Delaware Barrel says. (laughs) Meaning the reward is that, the people, the love, because the university is not going to give me the reward for that because it can't. Not like that. Why? Well, because it can't incentivize it like that. Why? Because it would create all kinds of turmoil um, within the socio-political system. Like a Columbia University, uh, Harvard, right? And one of the, I feel I'm blanking on his name, but one of the top community researchers years ago. It was a big story. I didn't know him that well, so I don't know his name, but I remember the case, and it was Boston Globe covered it, front page, he was doing his thing. He's a white scholar, actually, and he didn't get tenure. And mind you, they don't have to give you tenure. Like they, don't, they don't have to promote you, even though if you publish, handle with this. They don't have to do that. There's no requirement. We see what happened with Cornell West. They li- literally don't have, you could publish, one time professors told me, a uh, hundred articles yesterday. The university reserves the right. So like I said, there's no incentive. It's like a corporation on the board of trustees ultimately control the institution, its direction, its values. Um, So you just have to be prepared. If you sign up for this, you have to understand what comes with it. And you have to be prepared to do um, as much of it as you can. So in the classrooms, I do teach about all of this stuff, right? But I'm also informing the student, particularly the grad student. I'm doing a much better job than I think happened during my training in terms of informing the student like, if you really want to do this work, let me tell you what comes with it. Because I romanticize a lot of, I think, a lot of the warrior scholars that have come before me. I was caught up in their speeches and in their beautiful writing. And they all the time, like Derek Bell, 
And throughout it all, when I look retrospect, no, they did warn the reader about what comes with this. You know, what comes with it outside of the beautiful speeches and right, that kind of glorification. Yes, yes, yes. I remember Derek Bell, I watched a lot of his videos and he says one time, right, and he's trying to warn people like me who are just romanticizing him. He says, you know what my wife said? My wife wants me to relax and chill out and, ooh, ooh, and come home and be a husband and a father and da, 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 da. And I said to my wife, well, I have to do this work because, and, and this happened, I gotta do it. And, and she said to me, Derek, why does it always have to be you? And at what point will you pour back into this family? It's not even about if you're right or wrong. And his wife died of cancer. Uh, He's sharing this story. I'm paraphrasing the story. His wife dies of cancer and he leaves Harvard and he leaves a cushy tenured position. And, you know, he's really an adjunct at NYU. And he kind of said that's what he wanted. I mean, I think they were prepared to give him a more permanent line. But if you look at the stories of the Paul Robinsons, or Derek Bells, or the Marcus Garvey's, or the Malcolms, or the Martins, you name the freedom fighter revolutionary. Great story. Wow. But their lives all right, are ending up, for the most part, in a certain kind of way. So I make sure to teach that part of the journey to the student in the classroom. And I make sure to drill it too, because even though I've heard it, but it's easy to go over your head because that speech was hot. Oh my God, I want to be like him. And thank you. And look at the applause and look at how freely he writes and speak. And, but you got to understand what comes with that. And you have to be clear. Are you willing to accept what comes with it? So that's what I teach. That's how I get them to understand. And I don't know how, even after I do all that, I still get a bunch of students that sign up. I want to sign up. Okay, now. And I always tell students, make sure you're happy. Let that be your priority, whatever that means to you. And, um, and don't let this academy rob you of your biological family, because it will. It doesn't incentivize that neither. It doesn't incentivize you having children. It, the structures put in place in such a way to de-incentivize all of that. And I always say, don't let anybody or any institution rob you of that. So Justin, I'm so happy to hear that you, because you're now a parent, right? Yeah, I am. Just uh, three months ago. Thanks. Surprise, listeners. We've got a pedagogy <laughs> for these baby. That's right. <laughs> not, not we as in me and Justin, but there is a pedagogy for these. Collectively, baby. indeed. Community baby. Congratulations. Thank you. Well, Yasser, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast and for like all of the really amazing contributions that you that you brought to us. I'm sure that our listeners are going to be super excited to hear this interview. It was an honor to be with you all. Thank you. Thank you, Justin, for remembering me. I really appreciate it, brother. Thank you so much. We'll talk to you soon. Talk yes. soon. Justin, what's what's on your mind after that interview? Yeah, well, certainly gave us a lot to think about. I jotted all these notes down of things that that I wanted to rehash that made an impression on me. And I think first and foremost, I'll, I'll mention how much I really appreciate your question, your follow up question, and then his his explication of the apprenticeship model mm. being much more than what we normally think of when we think of maybe apprenticeship in a classroom. It's like okay, I'll extend my office hours. I will give a little bit extra time to grade this paper to show them how to write mm-hmm. better. But what Yasser is pointing to is much longer than that, mm-hmm. right? A four to five year process for those folks. But I know some of his folks that he worked with in his dissertation and some of his early work, it's been much longer than that and he's still in their lives. Mm-hmm. So to think about apprenticeship being a commitment that you're going to do everything you can inside the classroom, outside of the classroom, inside the the academy, outside of the academy, to show them, to provide guidance around how to really get their feet on the ground in this, you know, in this game that we play, this this sort of performative navigation that we have to play. So I really, really appreciated the nuances that he mentioned about apprenticeship. Yeah, I was also thinking about how like, once you 
reimagine your pedagogical model to be based in apprenticeship. I think a lot of us do sometimes go above and beyond for individual students, right? We're one-off students, a student who's particularly struggling or a student who's particularly promising, but those are sort of the exceptions to the rule. Mm. And really what I what I was hearing Yasser talk about and something that's like a really interesting way to reframe what we're doing is like, what if rather than being ex- exceptions, that was the rule? Going above and beyond the investment in your students as whole and complete beings who might need guidance. That's not about how to write this upcoming paper or how to ex- you know succeed in this particular research methodology, but as a much more large-scale commitment to growth and flourishing and also safety and security and mm-hmm. and yeah, a sort of holistic commitment, not as exception, but as as the rule. Yeah. And then I think it also definitely touches upon that other idea of which is uh embracing the burden to work harder. You know, because I love the idea of thinking, yeah, right. I, I love the idea of thinking that um, like mentorship. More? Yeah. Mentorship is the rule, not the exception. Mm-hmm. And I want to internalize that. But, you know, in many ways, the the reason why we're doing this podcast, right, is because we're recognizing that in order to make spaces where we feel that we can be ourselves, that we can be seen, we have to do a little bit more. I always tell my students that if you want to do, let's say, for instance, like critical international relations or feminist international relations, you have to know the canon, the most popular you know, readings and and sets of theories in your field more so than the folks who just stay in that space to begin with. Oh, totally. You know, because your expertise and your credentials are going to get challenged on it at every turn. Oh, you do this weird yeah. feminist thing. Oh, you do yeah. this weird anti-racist thing. That doesn't you make must sense. Not know exactly. Yeah, you have to be intelligible, and so you know, I think that notion of making mentorship, apprenticeship, the rule, not the exception, moves right into the conversation of. Are we ready to work harder? Are we ready to do this? Because the the joys that come with it aren't necessarily joys that are given out by the academy as or the university as as Yasser reminds us, but you know, the love from community, from people you work with, it's a tough one because there's also a practical element. There's a performativity about being credentialed and so on and so forth, but it also allows us to stay in the academy. It allows mm-hmm. us to put food on the table. So some real, real navigations I think he points to. Yeah, I mean, and then also, right, one of the things that Yasser was saying about not letting the academy prevent you from having a life and a family, and then, you know, right, like, all of a sudden, it's like, do more for your students in your research, do more activism, and also be super present for the human, you know, the humans in your biological and chosen family, and I think... Honestly, right. I'm like, yeah, I want to be able to do all of that. And also I'm so tired, (laughs) especially, you know, of course of the pandemic, I just think, you know, it's a real, like, I don't, I don't want to sugar. I I think, and this is also what Yasser was saying, like, it's not helpful to anyone to sugarcoat or like give this Mm -hmm. performative story that like doing the things that are already expected of you at your job and doing more and doing activism and being really present in your personal life. I don't think that's an easy task to be excellent at all of those things. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we should pretend that it is, right? Like, I think especially working women really got hit with this, like, you can do it all. Your life should be whatever it looks like on a magazine cover or on an Instagram influencer post, like you can do all the things at the same time. And I think there's like, you know, an important balance to strike. That's like, you should have, you should be able to do all of this, like in Mm -hmm. the world that we want and the way to get to the world that we want is to practice that world. And we don't have to pretend like that's easy or immediately available to everyone like as given. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think what this goes to is what I was thinking about was, uh, you know, Yasser mentions that the, uh, he mentioned it briefly that we need to find our community so we don't go crazy. <laughs> That's yeah. one thing he mentioned. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that the community can hold us up in certain ways that the university can't. And I think of Paulo Freire, he mentions that praxis or action and theory, when it moves beyond just an occupation to a preoccupation, mm-hmm. 
right? That we, we can't live without it, that we need it. Certainly you have to have that commitment in order to stay in, to be able to do and, and work towards these changes. But then as you point out, the difficulty of so much on one's plate, that's also where I really appreciated Yasser going to in our conversation he's talking about where it's a, it's about individual conversations, right? At the table, or it's about finding people with good hearts, right? I think he said small time conversations at the table. It's mm-hmm. where work is done. So to me, it's like, I see kind of like a, a non-compromising around institutional structures, but at the same time, finding a lot of energy from the communities that we serve and also from the energy and joy that comes from individual relationships with students, right? How do we mentor an apprentice over time? To me, that's the only way I think that, you know, we look at what's being presented in a way that's, that's doable, given all of these commitments, given the realization that oftentimes when you're working for justice in a marginalized sort of perspective, you have to do two, three times the work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I say this a lot to activists when mm-hmm. like we're talking about burnout, which is like, yeah. you know, people show up to activist spaces, they show up to social movements and causes because of principled commitments, right? To politics, mm-hmm. they show up for politics, but they stay because of relationships. Like the thing that allows people to stay in movements over the long term, despite the ways in which it is like painful and hard and sometimes dangerous is because of the relationships that they build and the community that they are able to be a part of. And so like, I think one of the ways that maybe doesn't get as much, I don't know that we don't talk about as much in terms of being scholar activists is like, how are we creating that community in those relationships Mm. and showing up for each other in ways that can keep us all to use Yasser's words, like can keep us sane in this work and in the face of really sometimes overwhelming demands on our, our time and our, and our hearts. Yeah. I like that idea of showing up for politics, but staying for the relationships. And then as the officer mentioned, you know, why, why are you here in the first place for him? It's liberation of his people. Yeah. One of the questions I have, or is maybe just more rhetorical, I think what he pushed us to is he mentioned that oftentimes folks don't see curriculums as, as empowering. They see them as disempowering. Mm-hmm. You know, and so then it, it leaves us with this question, which I think we've been exploring over these last handful of weeks. What does a curriculum look like that is empowering? You know, and I think many people have given us different dimensions to that question, but I think it's one that I'll keep keep thinking about. Yeah. And I just think it's it's also like a very different question to keep at the forefront of your mind than something like, how do I teach the canon? Or how is this curriculum gonna prepare students for careers as whatever, like how is this curriculum helping get people free is a really different question to have at the forefront of your mind when constructing either like a whole curriculum or even a particular syllabus or even a lesson plan for the day. Like this is a different goal. And I think we would all be better served to keep it more at the forefront of our minds, you know? Yeah. Transformative. Mm -hmm. Well, great. Thanks everyone for listening this week. We will talk to you soon. See you soon. Thank you for joining us. Pedagogies for Peace, Intersectional and Decolonial Teaching was made possible by the support of the Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies at the University of Notre Dame. The music is by David Hazardous, and the podcast is produced and distributed by Hannah Heinzaker. You can find all the episodes of the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.